Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, I am so excited about today's episode and I can't wait to get into it and share it with you. But I just wanted to remind you before we get going today to visit expatmoneyshow.com and sign up for my private newsletter, EMS Pulse. Right now we are sharing the weekly episodes from the podcast, but also a ton of other products and services that we're going to be offering, lots of language programs, lots of tips and tricks for being an expat, whether you're a first-time expat or an expat hopeful. There's just so much going on at expatmoneyshow.com. I really hope that you get a chance to come and visit us, join the newsletter, and then from there, maybe join our Facebook group at expatmoneyforum.com. Lots happening. I really want to share it with you guys, and the best way to stay connected is through these two sites, expatmoneyshow.com and expatmoneyforum.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy today's episode. Cheers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is now running his third multi-million dollar venture. He's a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal, is a popular keynote speaker on innovative entrepreneurial topics, and is the author of Profit First, Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, which Business Week deemed the entrepreneur's cult classic, and with his brand new book just released, Clockwork, Design Your Business to Run Itself. Please welcome to the show, Mike Michalowicz. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Mikhail. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Mike, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of talk us through your backstory? Sure, sure. So, uh, my grades. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I don't talk about, right? So, after I graduated college, though, in all sincerity, I, I was unable to get a job, a good job, a, a career-type job. So I was thrust into entrepreneurship, not out of my interest, but out of necessity. And I've been in the entrepreneurial journey my entirety of my adult life, so about 25 years now, growing businesses. I've had the good fortune of building and selling two companies. One was acquired by uh, private equity, another one by Fortune 500. But I think the interesting part of my story is not that. I think it's the loss of everything. After I sold my second company, I honestly was a blend of arrogance and ignorance. I thought I knew everything about entrepreneurship, which I surely didn't and don't. And, and I thought I could do everything, which I surely can't. And it resulted in me losing all my money and, and facing my family. I'll never forget the day. It was February 14th of 2008, Valentine's Day, that I went to my family and told them that we were going to lose our house we did and our possessions, which we did. And it became a turning moment in my life. It was the darkest period of my life. I actually went through a period of depression and struggled with it. But it also became a seedling for 
there's got to be a better way. And what it resulted in is I decided to commit to becoming an author. I always dreamed about doing it and decided that now I'm, I'm all in on it. I was at the bottom, rock bottom anyway. There's only one way to go. So I became an author, and uh, I've now written five books and, and more in the works. And what I do is, honestly, Mikhail, fixing kind of the mistakes and errors I made in my entrepreneurial endeavors. And uh, as I study and learn how to do things correctly, so to speak, I then prepare the book and, and hopefully it serves other entrepreneurs too. Well, I listened to Profit First this week. I bought it on Audible. And I love the audio version of it because you you put a lot of your own personality into it. And you really dig deep on some of these stories, like you said, on hitting rock bottom. I remember, and I don't want to drag you over the coals a little bit here, but I remember the one section that really stood out to me was about a piggy bank and your daughter bringing you the piggy bank. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Like that must've been super emotional. Yeah. So when I sat down with my family on February 14th, the reason was, was because my accountant had called me and suggested I declare bankruptcy, By which I, which I never did because I, I felt I dug such a deep hole for myself. It was my own responsibility to dig my way out. Not the people who gave me credit, but it was my job to fix these errors. So I decided not to declare bankruptcy, but also knew that I would have to compromise and lose everything. And as I'm telling my family this, and tears are streaming down my face, my three young children are sitting at the table hearing this. They have no clue. My wife sitting there, she had no clue. And my daughter hears this, and uh, she runs out of the room. What I thought she was doing, Mikkel, was actually running away. Actually, that's what I wanted to do myself, was just run away. But she wasn't running away. She was running out of that room to go to her bedroom to grab her piggy bank. And she ran back down as fast as her little legs could carry her to me and said, Daddy, I'll provide for us. And when you know, this is a nine-year-old girl. When your your daughter it gives me chills remembering this. When you, my daughter felt compelled to come to me to save me financially. It was the most humbling moment of my life. I was so like ashamed and embarrassed about my own arrogant behavior, my own lack of understanding about business, and also at the same time, so honored that this little girl would would step up and protect her family over what her passion was. You know, she was saving money in that piggy bank to get a horse one day. And she's willing to compromise her dream to fix me. And if I think about it too long, I'll, I'll get emotional. It was, it was just, it was a brutal moment, but it became a turning point. The, the one thing I did learn from that experience, though, was that I think we all have those moments. That, you know, that's something, quote unquote, special, meaning we've, everyone listening to this show, Mikhail, has faced financial struggles or life challenges or something, everyone's hit those major bumps in the road. And I think those can become defining moments for us. I, I don't think in the moment we're like, oh my God, I now know all the wrongs of my own ways and I'm going to fix everything. I, I don't think it, it's that magic moment and everything changes in the moment. But I think as we reflect back upon it, it can become this kind of grand motivator to put us in a new direction. And that's what it did for me. I, I decided I will no longer ever again put my family in a financial position like that. And that actually became one of my systems when I wrote Profit First that's around that concept. But my other books too about growing organically and healthily, bootstrapping a business, all the books I've written have always been around how do I do it right this go around? What can I learn from other people that have been before me? What can I reflect upon in my own erroneous ways and things I did do right? kind of capture that together and put together a simple master plan, if you will, to, to do it this right this next go around. And the last thing I want to share is today I own a business too. So I'm a full-time author. 
but I, I own actually I have equity or interest in many companies now. That's one of the privileges of being an author is many entrepreneurs want to do business with you. So when I write these books, I also test out the thesis or the hypothesis, I should say, in my own businesses before I ever put it in the final print. I think it's a really powerful story because when I read Profit First and more specifically when I listened to it, I felt like this is a man on a mission. Like this is really how I felt reading Profit First, that you didn't want people to have to go through these types of things again. And you really used a lot of your own life experiences to help others. And I thought, my goodness, I have to get this guy on the show. This is just (laughs) absolutely brilliant, brilliant concepts. Thank you. Yeah, I I am a man on a mission. You know, I, I believe my life's purpose now is very clear. It's to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. And I think the impact it can have on our world is extraordinary. I mean, could you imagine every entrepreneur being successful, not worrying about money, having time freedom? The impact would be that their employees see this and maybe they start their own businesses or at least benefit from a successful, healthy business. And that impacts them families. I think entrepreneurs can change the world through their own action. So that's what I'm doing. I am looking to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. There's this misperception. I know every entrepreneur listening can relate to this, is the day you elect to become an entrepreneur, start a business, your friends who are not entrepreneurs look at you and they immediately think that you're a millionaire. Like, oh my God, you started your own business. You're so wealthy, you know? You're doing so well for yourself. That's the yeah. way I get it. You're doing so well for yourself. Yeah, you're doing so well and they have no clue. They also think that we live in this, this flexible time kind of zone. Like we can do what we want, when we want. We have total luxury that we're not beholden to anyone. So we're millionaires and we can do whatever we want. The reality is most of us are far more impoverished than our friends and they don't get it. And we don't have any time. Our business becomes all-consuming. And that's why I call entrepreneurial poverty is that we've, we've flipped so far to the, the downside of entrepreneurship that so many businesses are struggling to make money that the overwhelming stress of making money is a constant. Uh, it almost becomes normal, that stress factor. The fact that we have no time is expected. You know, sacrificing dinner, what, what's dinner? No one does, you know, I, I gotta work till midnight every night. And we make all these other sacrifices. So my mission is to eradicate all of that. I also know it's not going to happen in my lifetime. I, you know, I hope to live a long, healthy life. 50, 60 more years would be wonderful. But I don't know if that's a reality. But even if I do, will I, will I personally be here when entrepreneurial poverty is eradicated? No. But what I'm trying to do is write books that will live beyond me and serve people beyond me. And that's why I'm so passionate in my books and hopefully join forces with countless others who are on the same mission. And then I think together we can make this a reality. Entrepreneurship can be a very healthy, successful endeavor for everyone permanently. Well, because you have this mission, you've not tried to tackle it yourself because I know that you do have an organization that you work with. You work with chartered accountants and different individuals who take the concepts and help their clients with these things. Because when I read your book, I actually went out to my accountant and said, okay, we need to get you a copy of this book. This is the things that I want to put into play. And I bought him a copy of the book and he's going through it right now. You know, like, so your work is now being shared to additional people and now being shared to professionals who will also be able to help others. So I think it's a whole networking. It's a whole spider web effect of how this is going to reverberate through society. I think, yeah, the most important people when it comes to finances are the people that we work with most closely, which is our accountant, our bookkeeper, maybe even a business coach. I think they have such an intimate relation to us and they they know our numbers so well that they're naturally the ones that support us. 
I mean, to have an outside guy, like, same with me, just walk into your business and say, hey, let's look at your numbers, it's kind of like opening the kimono. You may not want to show that stuff for competitive reasons. Maybe there's embarrassment, maybe protection, all these factors. But there's an established community already, the ABCs, accountants, bookkeepers, and business coaches, who are already kind of inserted in our business. So while I was writing Profit First, I released pre-release copies to readers and I started getting these calls saying, hey, I read your book. I'm going to try this out. Who's the accountant or the bookkeeper or the coach that supports this? Because I want to find that person to be my trainer, kind of. And that was the epiphany. That's when I said, oh my gosh, I need to find this community. So it was about four years ago with the original release of the book, it's, it's now been revised and expanded, that we started Profit First Professionals. We're a small organization at our office here. There's about 10 of us that run it as employees, if you will. But on an international basis, we have 300 plus, like 304 or so, 305 members internationally who become certified in this process. Those 300 people, they're the ones who are really eradicating entrepreneurial poverty. They're working hand in hand with each one of them individually, dozens, maybe even 100 plus clients in navigating them through Profit First. And that's where we're seeing the impact. I love it. So Mike, why don't you take a little bit of time and explain to us some of the concepts so my followers understand what we are talking about here with Profit First. So the idea is to capture our natural behavior. And what I mean by this is when I speak with entrepreneurs, and I've had the privilege now of meeting thousands and thousands, probably tens of thousands of entrepreneurs over the years of me being an author. Next week, I'm going away traveling. I'll be meeting with a few hundred more people. And what I've discovered is that even though our traditional training when it comes to managing books is to look at our income statement, our, our profit and loss statement, our balance sheet, our cash flow statement, to tie his numbers in together, to establish metrics, et cetera, et cetera. The natural instinct for most entrepreneurs is to revert to what I call bank balance accounting. Log into our bank account, see if I have money. If I have money, I can spend it. And if I don't, you know, panic ensues and I try to sell anything to anybody. So our natural tendency is to run our business based on our bank balance. And this is small business I'm talking about. Larger businesses that have kind of more sophisticated accounting teams and controllers and comp controllers and so forth. Those companies typically move away from bank balance accounting. I find companies as big as 10, even $15 million in revenue, even more, are still running off their bank balance. Surely businesses that are less in revenue, we all just run off our bank balance. So Profit First is a system that captures that behavior. And here's what we do. Step one is to set up multiple small bank accounts, if you will, at your bank for your business. Most businesses have one bank account. It's the income account and all the deposits go in there and they pay all their bills from it. What I suggest is no longer having a single account where we collect money and pay money from. Because the reason is, the analogy I use is like a, like a big dinner. If, we, if we're celebrating a big family dinner or something, and we take out that serving tray and it has that uh, piece of steak on there, whatever it is, to serve you know 10 people, or maybe so as many pieces of steak, we don't tell everyone at the table, hey, everyone, just run up to the serving tray, knife and fork, everyone for themselves. It's a free-for-all. Of course not. What we do is we carve, we cut up the steak, and then we give some to each person so everyone gets a serving. So the serving tray is not the dining tray. The plates are what we eat off of. The serving tray is simply the display of food and the distribution of food. In our business, we need the exact same thing with our bank account. I call it a depository-only account. That income account, money comes in there, and what happens is the money simply goes in that account and is displayed. It's the serving tray. We are then going to carve it up effectively and send it to the other small accounts. I've also found 
what I'm going to share is the next four accounts, but I found there's five foundational. I just shared the first one, the income account. But businesses, as they get further along the system, may actually go beyond five accounts. My own business has now, I think it's like 12 accounts, which seems overbearing initially, and that's why I suggest businesses don't start there. But over time, you may build more and more accounts. All right, so the first account is the income. second account is called the profit account. This is the most important element of a business. Profit is a reward for taking on extraordinary risk starting a business. 93 or 4% of the world population will never be entrepreneurs. You as an entrepreneur have done what is extraordinary, and this is the financial reward for that. So we take the money out of the income account as, as a percentage, a small percentage. We could be 3, 4, 5, 10 over time. We would even grow it more and allocate that money to profit first, hence the title of the book, Profit First. We take our profit first. Now, the next count is owner's compensation. Owner's compensation is the pay to who I believe are the most critical employees of a company, which is the owners of the business. Meaning, if you're an owner-operator, you work inside your own business, chances are no one works harder than you. You know the business more intimately than anyone else. You will do anything to make the business successful. You can sell better. You can do all these amazing things. And chances are, for part of the time, or maybe most of the time running your business, you've done that for no money. I mean, that's the definition of the world's greatest employee. If I get people to come to my company and make those sacrifices of not being paid, but do this extraordinary work, you know, I would die to have them, but they would never come because their own business has them. That's the key. So their business needs to treat them as the true best employee. That's owner's compensation. We need to reserve money to pay you a salary. Profit is a reward for being an equity owner. It's a quarterly distribution typically. And the owner's compensation is pay for being the best employee. Final two accounts, one is called tax. Tax is to pay for the tax liabilities of the owner. We started our business for financial freedom. This is the part of financial freedom is when taxes are due, they're accounted for, and the business can account for the taxes of any owner, regardless of the formation or the type of business. We just need to reserve it, and then we allocate it based upon different kind of governing rules based upon the type of company you have. All this said, the final account is the operating expenses. That is what the business runs off of. And what I mean here is, say your business takes in $1,000 this week. Well, a percentage is going to go to profit, a percentage is going to go to owner's comp, a percentage is tax, and then the final percentage goes to operating expenses. You'll have maybe 50% going to operating expenses. So you don't have $1,000 to run your business. You, in fact, have $500 to run your business. By setting up these multiple accounts, it brings instant clarity by doing what most entrepreneurs will already do, log into your bank account. You can continue to do that behavior. You log in, and now you see what money is available for what purpose. And the beauty here is that before, when we had one single account, the serving tray, we said, oh, there's $1,000 to run my business. That was never true. We, we need to allocate for the health of the business first, the profit, the, the pay of the owner, the tax liabilities. Then, now we can see we actually have only $500 to run our business, and we need to adjust accordingly. The final thought around this, and that's just the basic principles of the, of the system, is that when a business does this, I, I get tons of resistance from people, and understandably so. First, skepticism, saying, I've never been profitable. Now you're telling me by taking my profit first, I'm going to be magically profitable? No way. So I understand the skepticism. I was skeptical myself. I did this because I had to do it, not because I wanted to do it. But here's what happens. I found that you don't become magically profitable, but you're forcing profit. When you take your profit first, you are now looking at your business saying, okay, now that I only have $500 to run my business, how do I pull this off? 
I'm effectively reverse engineering profit. And it forces me to make hard decisions today. I have 500. Well, maybe I shouldn't be hiring that person. Maybe I'm actually overstaffed. Maybe I don't need that equipment or that software. Maybe I can delay things. Maybe I can run things more efficient. It makes us have those hard conversations now as opposed to the worst time to have it when most businesses do is when there's literally no cash left anywhere and then panic ensues. And sadly, they have to fold their business or they try to start playing the cash flow game where they start to sell anything to anybody, collect money and hoping they'll get them by, which you can temporarily, but they keep on digging a deeper, deeper hole because their expenses are not in control yet. Because one of the main things that I find with entrepreneurs is that they want to reinvest everything back into their business. Like taking profit on the front end, it really is contrarian to, I, I believe, a lot of ways that people run their business. Yeah, it's funny. So th there's that very popular saying, it takes money to make money. So when people hear this, they say, Mike, if I take my profit first, I'll prohibit my growth. And so here's my first thing is whoever said it takes money to make money is a real jerk because <laughs> I, I mean, why, why does it have to take money to make money? That's absurd. Um, it doesn't at all require that. That's the, the, the lazy approach to growth is to put money in and see what the returns are. But more effective, albeit harder way is to determine innovative ways of doing it. How do I make money with less money? And so what I found is, which is fascinating about Profit First, is even I didn't believe that a business could grow if it takes its profit. But I found the reverse to be true. As businesses take their profit, and now we have, we're approaching 100,000. We know of over 75,000 businesses doing Profit First. So you know, we have a good market now to test. And what we find consistently is businesses that take their profit first are outpacing in growth their competitors in their same industry, which kind of blew my mind. That made no sense. And then we started to study it, and here's what we found. Businesses that take their profit first have to become more critical of how their business operates, meaning they have to only sell the services or products that are truly profitable. For many businesses, there's a offering mix, some things we're doing that are not profitable, not benefiting the customers, therefore not necessary, but we do them because we think we need to do them or we've always done them in the past. So businesses that take their profit first are more selective what they do. When they're more selective and they narrow down their offering set, they then have to narrow down the customer base on who can benefit from that. Who are the people who can derive the most benefit and are willing to pay the greatest premium? And when you ask that question, it actually is a form of niche specialization or niche, depends where you're from. And with niche slash niche specialization, you start to find a community that resonates with you is willing to pay an extraordinary premium because they value what you're doing because you're doing such an extraordinary job at it. When you do an extraordinary job at it, the word of mouth marketing kicks in. They start telling everyone they know, and now you start building in the community. So businesses that take their profit first, shockingly, we have found, and we're experiencing this too, outpace their competitors, not just in profit by a long shot, but they typically grow faster because they're much more focused on what they're doing and what they're doing for who. I love it because the concept of being profitable for day one is such a reward. And being an entrepreneur is hard and it can be very disheartening. But I imagine that this will be an incredible motivator to a lot of people to really push through. They'll be able to see the rewards right there in front of them from day one. Yeah, you know, that's the best part of this. So I'll tell you my personal experience and I'll share some emails in. Actually, as I'm looking at my computer right now, as, since we started talking, an email has come in. I, I'm blessed now. I get roughly about 25 emails a day from readers of Profit First, about one an hour. Not always on the hour, so to speak, but about 25 a day. And it's a big blessing because I discover 
kind of the psychology behind this. Here's what happened with me. The day I implemented Profit First, there was this sudden this mental relief. Now, I was taking 1% of my income, so it wasn't anything big. Like $1,000 would come in. I'd literally take 10 bucks and put in profit. One of the keys, too, was I, was not, I didn't set those other accounts I shared. That's kind of the full core system. But when starting out, it's best to start off with just a small piece, a small step. So I started out with just a profit account with 1%. $1,000 comes in, I still have 990 bucks from my business. It's such an inconsequential difference in money that my business could operate kind of from the hip like I've always been operating it. But when I looked at profit account, I saw that 10 bucks there. It's like, holy cow, I literally have a little bit of money for no other purpose than just to give to me as a reward. It felt so good. Now my mind focused on how do I maximize that and prove it. And I was just constantly thinking about profit. It, it changed the questions I asked myself. I remember going to meetings and people would say, oh, you know, how big is your business, Mike? And I'd want to say, you know, maybe I had four employees. I'm like, well, we're, we're almost a six. Like, I always wanted to point to size. How are your sales? Oh, we're just, we're about to turn a million when we're doing, you know, 400,000 or something. I always wanted <laughs> to put this, it was an arrogance around size. And once I started taking profit first, that, that arrogance, that ego started to melt away. Now it became about just how profitable am I? How sustainable am I? I literally don't care about the size of my business or anyone else's anymore. I'm not in that comparative mindset around size. What I really care about is, is this supporting a lifestyle that I've dreamed of? Is it giving, is it pulled away all my financial stress? So I don't have to stress about money at all. Like that's the dream. So the new question I have is how healthy is, is someone's business? So when someone says, how big is your business? I'll say, Hey, what, you know what? Let's have a stronger conversation. Let's ask about how healthy our business is. Cause maybe we can help each other out here. And I found this true for so many readers. I don't know, I, I can't read this email right now, but the email that came in, I suspect the person's likely gonna say the mind shift they had. You know, when you implement profit first, it's a long play. We're gonna take a small percentage of profit now and every quarter, every three months, we're gonna amplify it. And, and maybe a year and a half, maybe two years from now, is when you're gonna start achieving profits that are outstripping anyone in your, in your industry. But you can't do it overnight. It's kind of like a gym. You don't show up to the gym and bench press 300 pounds. Like, forget it. You're going to rip out every socket in your shoulder if you haven't been working out like an animal. But if you go to the gym and simply start exercising, you'll be blown away if you stick with that pattern for a year or two on what kind of weight you can move, what kind of fitness level you achieve. So that's what we're doing. And that's what I get from readers is that when they implement profit first, the first response is simply like, oh, my gosh, I'm now attending the gym. Oh my gosh, I can, I can see the change. My, my mindset is there. My mindset has shifted. I feel more empowered. I feel I can finally pull this off. Then it's over time, three months, six months, sometimes longer, that people start saying, oh my gosh, this profit's truly accumulating. I don't have any financial stress anymore. So it's a mind shift change that brings about this kind of confidence of possibility. And then when it becomes a reality, all all bets are off, then these businesses really become powerhouses in regards to profit, powerhouses in regards to growth. Well, I love it because it really comes down to it's not how much you make, it's what you're going to keep. So if your business is doing $20 million a year, but you're only taking home 70000 or something like that, it doesn't really matter. I'd rather be running a million-dollar business but have profit first in place and be taking home a nice chunk of that money and not have the stress or the overhead or all the extra responsibility of having the employees to support such a large, large business. Because at the end of the day, it's how much you're taking home. You're totally right. It's not how much you make, it's how much you take, right? But 
But the mindset is, oh my gosh, if I want to take money, I have to have more employees. I have to be bigger. What I think many of us believe, I believe for the longest time, Mikhail, was that I have to simply get to a trigger point. It was, I thought it was a million dollars in revenue. As I was growing my business and wasn't taking home money, I said, well, when I achieve a million dollars in revenue, finally I'll be taking something home. And I got there, and actually I was taking home even less. I was refinancing my house to cover payroll at times. It was absurd. And I said, well, maybe it's the $2 million mark. Maybe that's where it starts happening. $2 million was actually more stress. I need now see revenue as a stress indicator. A business that grows in size has more responsibility, more stress. So if I'm doing $5 million in revenue and one of my companies surpassed that, it was extremely stressful because there's all this obligation associated with that revenue. I have to deliver those promises I made to my customers. I need the staff to support it. On the flip side, I believe profit is the anti-stress mechanism. It's the relief system. And I need to balance out that revenue with profit, but profit is necessary to relieve a business. So a business that has $5 million in revenue and has maybe $10,000 of profit in the year is far inferior to a company that does $100,000 in revenue but is throwing off $50,000 in profit. So we want to strike a balance between profitability and revenue. And I think we need to look at the profit factor first. What's that profit number we're looking to achieve? What's the impact it'll have in our lives? How stress-free will our lives be when we achieve that? Then kind of back calculate what kind of revenue will support that degree of profitability, not the reverse. We'll just take a quick break. So I want to remind you to go to expatmoneyshow.com to pick up your free special report called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. We have had some really good feedback with this. It's actually a project I've been working on for probably about four years now and been offering it to my subscribers. And I am constantly updating it with the best and the newest resources for people wanting to go abroad. It is really amazing. I'm really happy with the work that we've done. And it's really different than a lot of the other projects out there or special reports or eBooks or anything like that. And this is one of the main differences. It is highly curated, it is highly condensed. It is not 400, 500 pages long and talking about every single thing out there and every single little detail. Actually, that doesn't serve anyone. Your best bet is always to go with the really, really condensed information so that you can connect the dots, so you can understand what's happening and how things fit together. And that's exactly what this special report does. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can find it completely for free 100% free at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, enjoy, and let's jump back into the interview. And now, I know in your book you have some suggestions for people what they should be doing with this profit. Can you talk me through that a little bit? Yeah, so profit is a celebratory account. This is a reward for the business owners. Now, I want people to remember that this is you started a business, you took on extraordinary risk, and the business now has an obligation, you're an equity owner, to reward you financially for what you did. Many entrepreneurs, they like to use terms like plow back or reinvest or push back. We use these terms saying that, you know what, profit is not really profit, it's an expense. We're going to call it a profit for a period of time, but at a certain point, we're going to take it away from profit and we're going to put it into the business and buy stuff with it. The minute you pull it out of profit and you buy stuff, it's an expense, and it never was a profit. That was simply a shell game you played. Now, you know, this may sound a little bit crazy, 
until you understand the, the basis, the sound financial basis. If we look at public companies, I don't know, Mikhail, if you, you own public stock, I, I own some shares, I own some stock in Ford. This is not a stock tip by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> yeah. But I own, uh, I own some shares in Ford, and here's what happens. I want the stock to increase in value because I took on risk here. And if it decreases in value, well, that's the risk that I'm taking on. Ford sends out quarterly profit distributions. Every time there's a profit, they share it with their shareholders. Now, this is the exact same principle I'm saying small business has to do. Share the profit quarterly with your shareholders. That's nicely you, if you're the business owner. And the reason public companies do this, it's a, the golden rule of owning a public company, is to reward the shareholders, the ones who are engaged in taking on the risk. So I'm not necessarily a fan of large corporations. I totally respect that they've achieved their size. They've all started in garages and back, door, uh, and, and back rooms like we have, and they've achieved magnificent size. Uh, but I don't aspire to have a 10,000-person company or any of that stuff. But I do aspire to have a fiscally responsible company. And the only way you can achieve that kind of size, like those businesses, is if you understand the finances inside and out. You have to know the finances, and they do. They know the cash flow, and they know the golden rule of sustaining cash flow. It's keeping the shareholders engaged and enthusiastic. And you do that by rewarding them quarterly. When we as a small business, with our profit account, take out, I suggest, 50% of whatever's accumulated there as a reward for ourselves, it, it, it's engaging. Last quarter, as we're recording this, ended 17 days ago, quarterly profit distribution came out. I bought a small arcade, a vintage arcade system for our house, something we've been uh, excited about as a family for a long time. And we used profit to do this. Guess what? I, I'm, I, every quarter, I fall back in love with my company for the cool thing it does for me, uh, the fun things. Now I have these kind of memory components around my house of stuff I'm like, oh, yeah, my company did that. It has not just me engaged, but the other, quote, unquote, shareholders, my children, my family, my wife. Everyone's excited about how the company's doing because of the benefits it's yielding to us. So that's what you would do with half of it. What would you do with the other half? Okay, right. So the rule is this. Whatever money is accumulated in that profit account, half stays in, half comes out. The other half is to build cash equity in your business. There will be times when it is prudent to take on a loan of some sort. Maybe if you're looking to sell a company, cash is, is a very important tool to have. Uh, and there is certain stages of growth that you need to insert cash aggressively into stuff that's working. Stuff that you know will yield profit, but it needs a cash infusion now to yield its profit you know, 60 days from now. So the other profit rides, but it rides in a unique way. This, let's say this quarter there's $1,000 that gets contributed to the profit account. We take out 50%, that's $500. We as the shareholder, or shareholders, there's many, distributed, celebrate with that money. The other 500 stays in the business. Let's say the next quarter you contribute the exact same amount of profit. $1,000 gets added to so 500, it's now $1,500. Split it again, 50, 50, 750 comes out, 750 stays. So the, the equity in the business, the cash equity is growing, but also the distributions are growing. And now instead of 500, I took 750. Say next quarter, the business contributes another thousand to profit. Well, now it's almost eighteen hundred dollars in there. So now nine hundred comes out instead of seven fifty. Nine hundred stays. So both are accumulating. Now there is a certain point if you keep contributing a, a same amount of profit, say a thousand dollars a quarter, where the returns stop growing, so to speak. But the goal is to always be increasing profit because it's a percentage of revenue. But the beautiful thing is by taking this fifty percent out, both you are benefiting from a growing return. And the business is growing as cash equity, which is a powerful asset to have. 
a rainy day may happen too. Like a disaster may strike. I, I had a, a client working with during a nasty storm that tore through the northeast, collapsed their building. Thank God it happened on the weekend. Thank God no one was there. No one got hurt. But the business was devastated. They lost their equipment and so forth. They went to their profit first account. And they had a cash reserve specifically to manage this emergency. So that compounding effect, I can see how powerful that'll be right off the bat. Yeah, it's extremely powerful. You know, because you have to understand, we are behavioral animals. And what I mean by this is, as much as most of us try to be the Spocks, where as an entrepreneur, you're more likely the Captain Kirk. You're very persuasive sales-wise. You, you believe in what you do so much that you can, you can convince others to join your crew, even when your company's just a startup and a high risk. You can persuade through emotion. The Spock is the one who's extremely logical and, and is void of all emotion. Traditional accounting is a logical approach, but it doesn't play into our behavior, our natural instinct. Traditional accounting puts profit last. And when profit comes last, it gets ignored. It's like saying, oh, you know what? Start putting your health last. See how that serves you. When something comes last, it gets delayed and ultimately can, can kill us. What I'm saying is you got to put profit first, which is, uh, addresses the emotion. Now, this compounding effect you're referring to, when we see money accumulating, it's called, I can't remember the behavioral term for it, but the, effectively, we see a win and we're more likely to replicate it because we have an early win. So every time we see that profit account and more money going in there, we're more encouraged to put more money in there because we see more money in there. And it starts this kind of upward spiral as opposed to a downward spiral. Profit first, when I designed it, I designed it to work around my own natural behavior, but the countless entrepreneurs I interviewed and now spoken with around our natural behavior of how we like to manage money. We, we, we trust our gut. We're instinctual. So we don't need a system that's extremely logical. We don't need to run metrics and run budgets and KPIs to figure out what's going on. We can now revert on what we've always done. Log into your bank account. See what you have. But since money's been pre-allocated to its predetermined purpose, you can now use your instinct in a very positive, powerful way because you know what the money's intended for. I love it. I think it's just brilliant. So Mike, I want to change things up a little bit. We've talked a lot about profit first, and I think it is such a, such an important topic and such a brilliant thing that I really did need to share it with my entrepreneurial followers. But you actually have a brand new book that's just come out this week. It's called Clockwork. Can you tell me a little bit about it and maybe how you made the decision to go from profit first to this book here? That's a great question. And I'll start with that. I believe that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, something I just recently started studying, I think also translates into what I consider the entrepreneurial's hierarchy of needs. And just real quick, 101 on Maslow, he says the foundational need of all humanity is physiological needs, which is you know food, water, uh, stuff like that. And then we move up to shelter, and you, you keep moving up. At the very top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is the need of self-actualization. I believe the entrepreneurs, we have our own little Maslowian hierarchy, and the foundation is actually sales. Like if, if there's no money coming in, then there's no opportunity to extract uh, profit. So foundationally, you got to be selling. Once you're selling, then we need to be profitable. I consider selling the level of oxygen. Like if you're not breathing air, nothing else matters. You've got to get oxygen or you're going to die within minutes. So you got to have sales. But most businesses stay stuck in sales. I consider profit the next level up. That's like food and water. You know, you might be starving to death. A business could be starving to death. And most entrepreneurs actually start gasping for air. Like, oh, I need more oxygen. I need more sales. When really they need sustainability, which is profit. Well, as I continued up this hierarchy of needs, then once a business is consistently having sales and revenue, 
once the business is consistently profitable, then the next level is for the business owner to get the freedom of time. I would say that time is the most precious asset of all. Cash is replenishable. Everything's replenishable except for time. Every second that takes away, we will not get back in our lives. So this next hierarchical need is time. And that's what clockwork is. It's about how to design your business to run itself. So it's not dependent on you. And what I also realized is that while many of us call our business relationship a parent-child relationship, you know, I started a business, this is my baby, I believe that's actually a bad analogy. Because what that means is on its 18th birthday, so to speak, the business is off to college and it's on its own and now we're an empty nester. But really, it's more like conjoined twins. My business and me share a heart, a soul, and uh, if you tear us apart, you're killing both of us. So clockwork is about that kind of surgical disconnect where we very slowly, tactfully, and appropriately remove the business owner from the business so that ultimately the business can survive and live on its own. And then the business owner has the freedom to do what they want in their life. And if they want to continue to work in the business, they can do the work that they choose to do in the business. That's what Clockwork's all about. You mentioned some interesting words there, because actually I'm thinking back to emails that I've wrote to people, and specifically to personal friends and to family. And they'll always ask, oh, how's the business going? How's the podcast going? And I'll say, I'm having a lot of fun, and I'm putting my heart and my soul into this business. I've never worked at anything so hard in my life. And it really is that emotional connection you have with your business. Yeah, it really is, right? I mean, I think most of us entrepreneurs have an addiction. I I think actually a lot of humanity does. And the addiction is a healthy outlet, but it can become unhealthy. The the, the addiction is, you know, we we love our business. We can, we love that control of our own destiny. We love the impact we're having. The thing is it can become overwhelming. There was a time when I labeled myself a workaholic, proudly, by the way. And, and, And the definition is true. I was a, I had an addiction to work. I remember a period of about five or six days where I didn't see the sunlight. In the summer, here in New Jersey, you know, sun doesn't set till like nine o'clock at night. I was, I was coming in at five o'clock in the morning to get this office prepped. Then I only had uh, two, one colleague at the time. He would come in and then when he would leave, I would plow through the night and I'd be leaving nine or 10 o'clock at night. And I remember walking out on this one particular night, looking up going, wow, gosh, it is dark out and thinking, did I see the sun yesterday? I'm like, no, no. Oh my God, I haven't seen the sun for a week, which quite frankly means I also hadn't seen my actual sons, my children, for a week. Uh, and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? I then had the realization that calling myself a workaholic meant I was actually very proud of not being productive. I was very proud of not getting results. I said I could grind through anything, but I wasn't focusing on efficiency, doing the appropriate things in a short amount of time. I was just saying, ah, I can keep you know, I can stick it out till midnight tonight. So what I'm trying to do is reverse that workaholic badge that so many of us wear in pride and realize it's really an opportunity for us to change that around and, and to bring back balance. And, and by the way, I think our business will become healthier too when, when it's not dependent upon us just grinding it out yet another day. Well, that's the catch-22. A lot of people start businesses so that they can have more freedom, spend time with their family, travel the world like we do with a lot of the entrepreneurs that follow me here. You know, but then we end up putting so much time into our business that we're actually working a lot more, sometimes two times, sometimes three times as much as we would at a normal job. And that's time away from our friends and our family and the things that we want to do. 
which is the reason that we got into this at the first place. So it, it really goes in a circle. Yeah, it really does. It really does. And we're blind to it because we're living in the moment. You know, it's hard to see the big picture. The big test I put in Clockwork, the new book, which really is, is the big ultimate test, and it can be shocking when people hear it, but this is the challenge I've laid down. And Clockwork has been tested now on many companies um, as we're rolling it out, and many readers now are picking it up and implementing it too. This is the big test. Can you take a four-week vacation? Meaning today, if I just, just swooped up and said, we're out of here, oh, and we're leaving your phone stuff behind, we'll come back in four weeks, how would your business be? And most people hear that, they start gasping for air. They're like, I, dude, I can't leave for five seconds. Like, <laughs> you know, you know, and if you feel you can't leave, we have an issue. The reason four weeks is so important is four weeks, most businesses experience all elements of their business. They you know, collect bills, they deliver services and products, they engage new customers, they may get customers leaving, uh, they have to do the marketing, sales, admin, uh, payroll has to be processed. All these different elements have to happen in a four-week cycle. A lot of business owners think, well, hey, if I can get away for a week, is, doesn't that mean I'm free? And the answer is no. What I found in my own kind of style, and what I found so many entrepreneurs do, is when I was running my business and I had a week's vacation coming up, I would actually do a cramming process the, the week or two prior to try to cram as much work as possible, even the night before, just try to get as much done with the hopes that it would bridge me over until I get back. And then when I get back, I would kind of get up to speed. Well, that's not a business that can run on its own. It's just cramming in some extra work in advance and cramming in some extra when I return. A four-week break and total disconnect requires us to think at a new elevated level. Who am I going to get working on this work and getting it done? How am I not going to do it myself? And so what I'm asking people to decree, and I have it in the book clockwork, is to commit to a four-week vacation. And I'm not saying tomorrow, but I'm saying 18 months from today, a year and a half from today, that's enough runway to get your business to the point where it can run on its own. Even if you're a solopreneur, you can do it through contractors, VAs, and stuff like that. Make that declaration, make it very public so you're, you know, you're going with your family or friends. And it doesn't have to be extravagant. This could be to your mother-in-laws. I, I don't care about this money you're spending. I just care that you get out of the office. Then, once you make that decree 18 months out, starting today, we need to start taking step after step after step to actually get you out of the business so the business can run on its own and start working on designing the business not on doing the work in the business. That goes back to goal setting. I think that if you have something set concrete, and like you said, it's a public decree that people know that this is coming up, you're really going to be held accountable. And this is going to be a giant motivator, a mover for you to get things in action and get things set up so that you can do this correctly. That's exactly right. I mean, we, we need motivators, and there's two ways we're motivated. It's pain or pleasure. You know, so the, the pain could be that if I go away and the business can't run without me, I could be, it could be devastating to my business. That's a great motivator. The pleasure is, of course, you leave and you return and the business is still operating. And, and you shouldn't expect to come back to perfection, but you should expect to come back and it's still sustaining. And it will also reveal where things got bruised up and you need to fix them for the next four-week vacation. That's where the pleasure is gained. And so that's what I'm trying to, when I write my books, I try to always leverage human motivators, human behavior. I know if I just write the logical approach, you know, you should make your business run efficiently because you can, the business becomes more scalable. That's logically true, but it's not motivationally true. So what I try to do in every book is 
what are the triggers that will actually make us pull this off successfully? So we were talking about the hierarchy of needs. Now you've wrote five books. If you had to put these in order, and I don't mean chronological order, I mean in order of someone who wanted to start a business, which way would they go? If someone wanted to read these books, what would you suggest to them? Yeah, well, it all depends on your need. So I, I used to say, oh, you'll start off with the toilet paper entrepreneur and, and move on to then the pumpkin plant and then profit first. Here's what I've discovered is I ask anyone listening right now is think about your biggest challenge today in your business. Where are you struggling? Are, are you struggling to grow? Meaning you need more sales. That is, you, know, you need that oxygen coming in. Do you see a movement in your industry and, and, and want to become the industry authority? Well, if you're struggling with sales, the pumpkin plant's the solution. If, if you need if you want to become the industry authority, I wrote a book called Surge that talks to it. You need profit, profit first is great. What if your need hiring? Like I, I, I need to hire someone. Unfortunately, I haven't written that book yet, but there's another book out there to serve you. So I suggest to people is identify your own biggest need in your business today and then seek out the books that best serve that. I hope one of my books is it, but I only have five out there right now. There's thousands of amazing books out there that can serve you. Figure out your need find that book and you'll be served better than any other approach in my opinion. No, I agree with you 100%. I'm such an avid reader. I try to make my way through at least 100 books a year. And there are so many um, incredibly intelligent people out there who have put their life work and their experiences and like we mentioned earlier, their heart and their soul into these books. Like I really feel like it's a no-brainer. Like if my listeners, if you guys are not reading, if you guys are not educating yourself daily, like really you are putting your family at risk. You're putting your business at risk. And educating yourself about basic business concepts like taking profit from your business and where it should be done and in what order. Like, this is really important stuff, guys. You, you guys need to pay attention here. Yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm listening to it. And I, I got to tell you, Mikhail, I've heard so many people say, yeah, profit's important, yet they don't take an action consistent with it. And then years go by. You know, profit first has been out there long enough now, four years, that I get people saying, I discovered your book two years ago or three years ago, and I'm embarrassed, but I put it on the shelf and, and didn't do it. But now I'm so desperate, I'm back to it and I'm doing it. I wish I did it three years ago. The thing is, I also empathize and get it. You know, until something is of a crucial importance, it'll get delayed. It's kind of like a smoker. Everyone knows smoking's bad for you. Like, we don't need to argue that at all anymore. Um, but people continue to smoke. Why? Because they haven't had a heart attack yet. But when someone has their heart attack or some kind of lung disease, that is such a motivator to stop smoking that they immediately stop. My hope is that businesses don't need a financial disaster to become sustainably profitable. I, I hope an entrepreneur doesn't need to work yet another night through night sacrificing time for their family until a divorce or something happens that they start to recapture time. I hope they can just project where they are today and if they continue this pattern, how bad is it likely to get that that can become the motivator and we can prevent that from ever happening. Absolutely. And then going forwards and using the same type of processes that you used in Profit First, applying them to time, which I really think that clockwork comes down to. Not letting yourself become consumed with your business and making sure that you have strategies so that things can run on their own and not everything is dependent on you. Exactly. I couldn't say it better, better myself. Perfect. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show. I really loved our conversation today. If my listeners want to learn more about you, if they want to pick up your books, where can we send them? Mikhail, yeah, thank you for having me. It was a joy. It was a true joy. If you want to pick up the books, I'll give you a few outlets. You can go to Amazon or Barnes & Nobles or whatever your favorite bookstore is. But kind of the mecca, if you will, the source of everything is my website, 
It's MikeMichalowitz.com. It's a killer hard. It's so hard to spell. I struggle with it. So <laughs> let, let's skip going there. I'll, I'll give My team had to write your name out phonetically yeah, so that I, I made sure I didn't mess it up on your interview. I know. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, it's, it's, it's a doozy of a name. But here's the cool thing. Ways to get there. You can go into Google and just type in Mike. That's easy to spell. Hit the space bar and then type in Mick. M-I-C. Mike Mick. You'll see a big Polish name drop down. That's me. Um, the alternative is you can go to MikeMotorbike.com. My, my nickname in high school was Mike Motorbike. There's great irony here. I've never driven a motorcycle. But <laughs> if you go to MikeMotorbike.com, it'll get you to my site. And that's where you can get all the books, uh, free chapter downloads. So you can try it out before you decide to purchase or not. Um, I wrote for the Wall Street Journal for years. So you can get my best articles from the Wall Street Journal. Plus, I'm a blogger. I have my own podcast. It's all up. I love it. That's brilliant. And I am super excited to read Clockwork myself. It just came out this week, so I'm really thrilled to get a copy of that. Anyways, Mike, thank you so much. I will talk to you soon, and I really appreciate your time on the show today. Mikael, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everyone. Mikael here. So I have an ask for you today. If you're enjoying this podcast, what I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to leave us a five-star review, even better. If not, tell us why. We are really doing our best to make this show the absolute best it can be to help as many people to go offshore and inspire entrepreneurs and investors and business owners to move their businesses abroad. There's so much to be had in this industry. I love doing this work and I love doing this podcast, but we want to get the message out there to more people. And the best way to do that is with reviews. So if you have ever gotten one good tip, one good thing from this show, if you enjoy listening to us every single Wednesday or whenever you listen during the week, then please take 30 seconds out of your day, go out there, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a big difference for the show, for the visibility, and really helps get the word out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern 
closer in time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.